you gotta, uh, gotta stop doing these funny intros. Because this is very serious stuff here. <laughs> um, last week, I mentioned Tom Holland, the uh, biggest selling historian in the world. Um, not a Christian, but his most recent book is phenomenal. It's called Dominion. And it's basically an argument for how Christianity completely reshaped the world and gave us the ethics that we love so much, including the ethics of charity, uh, human rights, equality, and so on. Um, and apparently it's difficult to get here. Uh, someone just told me before I came up that they tried to borrow it at the local library. The library has two copies of it, uh, but they're both out, and there's a waiting list of, what, 20 people? 24 people. Uh, so it might be next year before you get to read it, unless you go out and buy it. But it's, it's amazing, because as a, as a person who's a professional historian, but not a Christian, he still reckons Christianity is awesome news for the world. Now, right on cue, as I was preparing this second talk, uh, Tom Holland tweeted out a response to the very famous atheist Richard Dawkins in the UK. Dawkins had been on the BBC talking about equality, the ethic of equality. And he was basically saying it's theological mumbo-jumbo, that uh, within an evolutionary naturalistic view, humans aren't equal. Some people are better than others. Better looking, stronger, smarter, more useful, more moral. So this idea of equality is a little bit theological and mumbo jumbo, to which Tom Holland, though not a Christian, tweeted this reply. The assumption that all human life is of equal value is, as Richard Dawkins intimates, a theological one. As Nietzsche, the German atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, long ago recognized when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. Tom Holland's point wasn't that atheists can't be moral. His point is that equality was given to our culture through the influence of the Christian faith. And in particular, the influence of this part of the Bible, the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. Now, Tom Holland is saying in an academic uh, setting what I've started to try and say in this series, that Christianity is fabulous news for the world and for the individual, for the believer and even for the skeptic. Now, last week, uh, I just made some very high-level comments about the Christian faith from uh, chapter one of uh, Mark's gospel. And I made uh, four points, if you weren't here, here's the brief summary. Uh, you might wonder, well, why didn't you say it as quickly last week? But anyway, uh, I, I said that Christianity, um, Christianity is biographical. It's a weird fact of the Christian faith and only the Christian faith that the founding sacred texts are biographies all about the same person, four in a row, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells you something about the Christian faith. It's focused on a person. 
And then I made the point that it's historical, by which I just meant it's not to do with a dream or a vision or a philosophy. It's about events that took place in time and space, which we can verify. And then thirdly, I made the point last week that it's Jewish, by which I meant the Christian narrative is part of a massive backstory. It didn't pop out of nowhere. Jesus didn't found a new religion. It's part of a massive backstory going back to the Old Testament, to the Jewish people, to the, to the dawn of human history. And that's the point where I mentioned fairy floss or, or candy cotton or whatever we want to call it. <laughs> cotton candy. I still think fairy floss is much cooler. But um, the longer I live, the more I, 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 I want to base my life on something that's not like cotton candy. You know, that tastes sweet and then it's gone. And I find that in Christianity. And then I made the point that it, it, it's personal. That Christianity uh, isn't asking for you to perform a particular ritual or regulation. It's asking for your personal Trust. Now, I want these four ideas to be hovering in the background uh, today as I move on to zero in, in chapter two of Mark, uh, to a particular encounter Jesus has with an individual. And we're going to start to see more of why I think Christianity is fabulous news for the world. And I really hope I can convey something of my own experience when I was studying this passage for this message. Because I don't always feel this, but, but with this passage, I felt like I was, I was digging in a well and there was some beautiful, refreshing water. And then I noticed another layer and I dug a little bit deeper and that's even better water. And a little deeper, it's even better. And it's like the deeper I went, the more refreshing and life-giving it is. And I really felt to myself, man, I hope I don't mess this one up. I hope I can convey something of the depth of this remarkable passage. The, the text begins by introducing us to the teacher, Jesus. But by the end, we're face to face with God himself. Let me see if I can unpack this for you. The opening paragraph is safe territory. We're introduced to Jesus as teacher. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Everything about this uh, part of the passage is plausible, um, including the fact that it's set in the town of Capernaum, which is not like saying, you know, uh, the place where Bilbo Baggins lives. This is actually a real place in the world. You can go to Capernaum, and I have walked down these streets and stood in those homes, which are from the first century. It's a real place on the map. It's plausible. Jesus preaching to a crowd in Capernaum is also plausible. In fact, for some of us, it's the only plausible thing. Jesus was a beautiful teacher. Albert Einstein, uh, smartest man in the room, every room, uh, had a really interesting thing to, to say about Jesus. He, he was not a religious believer of, of any kind, but he did remark this. I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels 
without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates through every word. No myth is filled with such life. No one can deny the fact that Jesus existed, nor that his sayings are beautiful. Indeed. But did you know that even ancient first century non-Christian writers mention Jesus' fame as a teacher, like this one from Josephus. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. Hang on to that phrase, because I'll come back to it. But here's the point. And he was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. A non-Christian writer saying exactly what we find in our text. People flocked to hear Jesus in such large numbers that there was no room left. But just when we think we're reading a comfortable story about Jesus as teacher, we, we dig another layer deeper and we're introduced to a healer. And this is where it gets a little more confronting, especially if you're not sure what you reckon about Christianity. Some men came bringing him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through and then lowered the mat to where Jesus was, uh, that the man was lying on. And then we pick up at verse 11, I tell you, get up, Jesus said, take your mat and go home. And he got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them. There are some implausible things here, some might say. Uh, including what's this business of climbing up <laughs> the roof? What, do they bring a ladder and strap their buddy over their back and, you know, climb up that way and then, you know, pull apart the tiles and the beams? It seems implausible, except if you lived in the ancient world, you would instantly be able to picture this because many houses had staircases on the outside precisely to fix the roof they hadn't quite mastered the roof thing, right? So you'd have to often go up there and just repair the roof. So these guys have just gone up there, taken apart uh, the roof and lowered their friend down. It's entirely plausible. Now I should add, it's a little bit impolite. It's not the sort of thing you, you, know, you should do on a Wednesday to, to, your, to your friends, pull apart their roof, but it's plausible. Of course, the, the, the least plausible thing about this, if you're not a, a Christian believer, is, is the healing itself. That's what we find most implausible. So let me just say two quick things about healings and, and why I think even if you're not a Christian believer, you should be taking this stuff about Jesus as healer very seriously because non-Christian historians today do take this very seriously. And the first thing that I want to say is we do have exactly the kind of evidence we would expect if Jesus really did perform such healings. We do. What do I mean? We have three sources mentioning Jesus' healings from within 20 years and eight sources within 60 years. That is eight separate sources, not copied from each other, which mention the healings of Jesus within 60 years, that is within the living memory of Jesus himself. There were people still alive 60 years later who knew the details about Jesus' life. Now let's compare that with another healer we know from the time of Jesus, exactly the time of Jesus. In fact, he was from Galilee too. His, his name is Hanina. And Hanina, uh, 
thanks. Uh, we have one source. And it's written 130 years after Hanina had died. Now you can even work out without being a professional historian, when you look at eight sources within 60 years and only one source within 130 years, it's pretty clear the evidence in the case of Jesus is fantastic. It is, as I say uh, in my point one, that we have exactly the kind of evidence uh, we would expect if Jesus performed such healings. So the only thing you've got to work out is my second question. Do you reckon there's a creator behind the laws of nature? That's the only thing you've got to work out. Uh, because obviously, if you don't think there's a creator, if you think the laws of nature are just accidents, that all that mathematical elegance built into the particle to the cosmos is just accidental, then no amount of evidence is gonna convince you of a miracle, okay? But at least you've gotta acknowledge it, it, it isn't the evidence that's lacking, it's, it's your background belief that there's no creator and therefore no miracle that's pushing your conclusion. But if you think there probably is a creator, even in the vague sense of a mind behind the rational laws of the universe, then Instantly, you must be able to conclude that if there were such a creator, the creator could work through, within, and even beyond the laws of nature to perform a miracle. So the only question you've got to ask yourself is, do we have the kind of evidence in the historical record such miracle working would leave behind? And the answer is, you bet. In the case of one ancient figure, Jesus. Okay. Jesus as healer. But Mark doesn't leave it there. With the teacher, with the healer. There's a third layer in this ever-deepening well. And in some ways, it's, it's simultaneously the most confronting and, for me at least, uh, the most beautiful and refreshing. He is the Savior who forgives sins. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins, they're forgiven. Now we're not told what the paralyzed man and his friends thought of that. I'm pretty sure they were hoping for like a physical miracle, right? So the words, your sins are forgiven, they might have thought, yeah, yeah, that's great, but can we, can we have a healing? And we're not told, that's speculative, but we are told what the religious authorities thought about this. You see there in verse six, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? No human being has the right to forgive sins, not even the priests in the Jerusalem temple could forgive sins. Forgiveness of sins is God's business. And so what they're saying or thinking is that's cheap talk. It's blasphemous talk, but it's cheap talk. And that's why Jesus replies like he does in verse nine. He says to them, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. See, his critics are thinking it's easy to claim to forgive sins because that's invisible. Nothing happens when, that, when you forgive sins. It's not like the, the man suddenly starts to glow. So they're saying it's cheap talk. And that's why Jesus is saying, um, well, okay, okay, which do you think is easier? 
let me do the visible thing of healing the man in order to demonstrate I can do the invisible thing of forgive the man. That's what verse 10 says. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, I'll say more about that title in just a tick, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out. Here, for me, is the most extraordinary thing about Christianity. Not that Jesus was a teacher or a healer, but that he can forgive sins. That I can wake up every morning confident that despite my many failings, I'm forgiven. And I know well that our culture balks at this idea of sin, of wrongdoing. Our culture has slowly got to the point where we like to think of ourselves as good through and through and mostly getting better. But I reckon that secular mantra would be so oppressive. I, I couldn't believe it in a flash. I often think, okay, imagine getting up in the morning thinking to myself, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I reckon by nine o'clock, the counter evidence will have mounted up so much, it would be oppressive. I've been grumpy to my wife, I've kicked the cat, you know. I actually don't own a cat, but I would kick the cat. By nine o'clock, I know I'm not good through and through and just getting better. I love the realism of Christianity. I'm sorry, you're not good through and through. But here's the message, you can be forgiven. And here is the unique gift of Christianity to our world. This forgiveness comes free of charge. Verse five couldn't be clearer. I love these words. Soak them up. When Jesus saw their commitment, when Jesus saw their goodness, when Jesus saw their daring, their ingenuity, no. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, this word faith, it just means trust. Trust. Christianity, uniquely. I know everyone likes to say all the religions teach the same thing. That's usually on the lips of people who haven't studied all the religions. But Christianity uniquely says this forgiveness is free just by trusting. All the religions other than Christianity have this thought in common that it's your effort that earns the reward. And in some ways, you gotta give it to the other religions, that's logical. You, you messed up, so you fix it up, right? I mean, here's Hinduism, Hinduism famously has three paths of salvation. And I'm not making this up, this is all outlined in the Bhagavad Gita. All three paths are outlined there. The, the path of jnana, which is asceticism. Basically, meditation, going without food, contemplation, you can undo your wrongs and 
eventually find liberation. The, the other path is karma or deeds. That is, you do enough good karma, good deeds, to work off the bad stuff. So hopefully, you know, the good outweighs the bad. And then the third path is bhakti, that is devotion. That's the strength of your commitment to your favored God. So you wake up in the morning, you say your prayers to that God. You give an offering in the house to that God. You say a mantra with that God. And if you've been devoted enough, you'll be liberated. Buddhism, uh, very plainly says, you messed up, so you got to fix up. No one's here to help you. This is a, a quote from the Dhammapada, which is uh, one of the best-known portions of the Buddhist scriptures. And the Buddha said, oneself indeed is patron of oneself. Who else indeed could be one's patron? By oneself, wrong is done. By oneself, one is defiled. By oneself, wrong is not done. By oneself, surely one is cleansed. One cannot purify another. Purity and impurity are in oneself alone. Sounds very logical. And our Muslim neighbors teach exactly the same thing. The Quran in chapter 2 says, to give alms publicly, that is gifts to the poor, publicly is commendable, but to keep it secret and give it to the poor is better for you and will atone for some of your sins. Islam teaches this all the way through the Quran, that through the um, diligence of your prayers, through your gifts to the poor, you will undo some of your sins. In some ways, it's logical. But I love the illogic of Christianity, which alone says it's through faith. It's through trust. When Jesus saw their trust, he said, your sins are forgiven. It's a scandal. But actually, there's a greater scandal. Because I say forgiveness is free, uh, what I mean is it's free to you and to me. It's not free to Jesus. Near the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus makes a statement about how this forgiveness works. He said in Mark chapter 10, Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even I, the Son of Man, that's that strange title I'll explain in a moment, did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We can't manage sin and guilt through protesting that we're good through and through. We can't, according to Christianity, manage guilt through self-improvement, through trying harder. No, it's because Jesus has given his life for us, bearing into himself my guilt, my punishment. The only way is the way of faith. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? When he saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. That's what the teacher taught. That's what the healer demonstrated. And that's why the Savior died. I will never get used to this. Waking up each morning, as I did this morning, knowing I am forgiven because of Christ. Man, oh man, if you don't know this, will you come and trust Him?
be forgiven. Well, Mark introduces us to the teacher, yes. Uh, we dig a little deeper and we find that he is a healer, yes. Dig a little deeper and there's this wonderful overflow of refreshing water, Jesus the Savior. But there's a last layer, and in some ways it is the most scandalous, it is the most confronting. Jesus is God. Not just teacher, healer, savior, but God. Mark has actually been preparing us for this from the very opening paragraphs of his gospel. Um, but at dinner last night, Jeff and Aaron said, uh, delete that bit, it went on too long. Okay, so I'm deleting that bit. It was awesome, just trust me. That Mark has been building up to this point from the, from the very beginning to introduce Jesus, not just as a teacher or a healer or a savior, but as God. So that when we come to our scene in chapter two, we are primed because Jesus now does what only God can do, and that is forgive sins. And the religious authorities are dead right when they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's good theology. They knew that sins are the things you do against God. So how can Jesus step in and say, I forgive you? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, you think about it, right? If I steal your wallet today, and you're very upset with me, and we're having an argument out there in the, um, do you call it a foyer? Is that? Foyer, okay. Uh, we're out having an argument out there, and Aaron comes along, and says, John, I forgive you. What are you gonna be thinking? What right does he have to step in and forgive me when my wrong is against you? Only you have the right to forgive me. How can Aaron do it? Do you see the logic? If our sins are those things we do against God, how has Jesus stepped in to offer forgiveness? Unless he is God in the flesh. Now, instead of backtracking at this point and saying, oh, no, no, I didn't mean to give you the impression that, that I could forgive sins, that, that I am God, what does Jesus do? He turns up the volume of the point by giving himself a title no human being would dare give himself. There in verse 10, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, to do the thing only God can do. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Now, here's that weird title, son of man. It may, may not sound very interesting or lofty, but this is where understanding the Jewish backstory tells us exactly what's going on here because the Son of Man title is used in one place in the Old Testament and it's in Daniel chapter seven where there is this bizarre vision of a Son of Man. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a, there it is, Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Only God in the Old Testament is described as coming on the clouds. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This mysterious Son of Man 
in the Old Testament is somehow worthy of the thing only God is worthy of. That is universal worship. And that's the title. Jesus uses of himself repeatedly in the Gospels, but here at the very moment, he does what only God can do. Forgive sins. Christians are so used to this idea that they miss how scandalous it is. Our Muslim neighbors, like the ancient Jewish leaders, spot how scandalous uh, this is. And in fact, the Quran is adamant that this idea that I'm preaching on is actually a blasphemy. They do blaspheme who say, God is Christ, the son of Mary. Let's just soak this up for a second. I say, God is Christ, the son of Mary. Mark's gospel says, God is Christ, the son of Mary. But this is regarded as a blasphemy. If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers. Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before him. The the central claim of Christianity that God entered the world in the person of Jesus is regarded as a blasphemy by our Muslim neighbors. And the reason for this, they're not trying to be mean-spirited, they're trying to protect the glory of God, as if the glorious majesty of God could be associated with humble flesh, and worse than that, a shameful cross. But here is the very uniqueness of Christianity. Christianity says, yeah, we know it diminishes the glory of God. But God in his love for us shamed himself, humbled himself, gave himself on a cross. And actually, this is the idea that the historian Tom Holland, though not a Christian, says changed the world. Because people began to realize God loves humans so much, he shamed himself. He bore into himself their punishment. If that is how much the Creator loves us, What does that mean for how we view each other? How dare I look at another human being and think you are less than glorious when God has given himself for you? And that changed our world. This is why I say Christianity is marvelous news for our whole world. I hope I've been able to convey something of what I said at the outset, that reading this passage is is, is like digging a well and the water just gets better and better and better. Or maybe to change the metaphor, this passage, in fact, getting to know Jesus is a little bit like, you know, meeting someone for the first time, not thinking much of them, only to realize later that you were in the presence of greatness. 
I've had that experience a couple of times. In fact, 12 years ago when I was uh, first visiting uh, Ada, actually, in the same trip I was visiting Ada, I went up to Wisconsin and I met this fit young bloke named Adam. At least that's what I kept on calling him until someone said, that's actually Aaron uh, Rogers and uh, he plays for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, I tell you, calling him Adam is a mistake you only make once. I see this passage just like that. You're introduced to the teacher only to come face to face with a healer. More than that, the savior. More than that, God himself. Good news. It's good news. It's good news that changed the life of the atheist and Oxford Don, C.S. Lewis. I know we think of C.S. Lewis as that guy who, you know, wrote the Narnia series and lots of Christian books as well, but he started out as an Oxford academic and atheist until J.R.R. Tolkien, you know that lightweight, used to go with wa- for walks with Lewis around the deer park of Magdalen College in Oxford and argue with him about the existence of God and Lewis eventually came to believe in God and and, and then he had to try and work out, does he believe in any particular manifestation of God? He was already an expert in Greek and Roman myth and he was pretty sure the truth was not there. He was already an expert in Old Norse myth and religion. He's pretty sure there wasn't truth there so he studied Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and then Christianity in the end and came to a realization that completely changed his life. And I want to read you a quote where he explains his own realization in an essay that's often overlooked. It's just a four-page essay. And it's called, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? And he begins the essay by saying, I feel embarrassed by this title because it's a little bit like a flea saying, what do I make of this elephant upon which I sit? But nonetheless, Let me read you this quite lengthy quote, but I think it captures what I'm trying to convey today. How are we to solve the historical problem set us by the recorded sayings and acts of this man, Jesus? On the one hand, you have got the almost generally admitted depth and sanity of his moral teaching, which is not very seriously questioned even by those who are opposed to Christianity. On the other hand, there are claims which, if not true, are the claims of a megalomaniac. There is no halfway house and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion." If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have rent his clothes and then dealt with you. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, 
The only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind. Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. I think that is so well put. Christianity does not ask for your mild approval. Hatred, terror, are far more logical responses to the claims of Jesus than mild approval. And I hate to say it, it is a striking thing about America and how Christianized America has been, that there are a lot of people who express just mild approval at Jesus. But he is not simply teacher. He is healer, savior, and God himself. And the only appropriate response is to use the words of C.S. Lewis, adoration. But actually think, let's use the word that's in Mark's gospel, trust. Trusting yourself to him. The great news of Jesus, the great news of Christianity for our world is not simply that he taught lovely things. It is that God has come looking for you. He has remarkably put you first, shamed himself, so you could wake up every morning hearing the words, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. That's good news. That's the best news. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? So Lord, please, Give each one of us clarity about ourselves. Help us to see our own motives. Help us to understand ourselves. But more than that, help us, please, to understand this good news. Help us to realize that Jesus is more than teacher healer and even saviour. He is God in the flesh. Oh God, we adore you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.
See you next week.